0: Good morning. This morning we are reading from 1 John chapter three, starting at verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're spending this Advent season, Christmas season, doing something that we call every year Songs of Advent. And what all we're doing is meditating on popular Christmas carols. And we do that by tracing the themes of those Christmas carols back to the Bible, back to the ancient themes of hope and faith and love in the Holy Scriptures. So today's, today's carol that we're going to look at is God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And actually, this carol dates back to... England in the 1700s. So last couple of weeks we've looked at a German carol, a French carol, we're looking at an English carol now. This is one that, that the local policemen in London used to sing to people at night during their, 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 uh, their night watch. Can you imagine the cops singing Christmas carols to you when you walk down the street? Um, so that, th- this is one of the carols that they sang back then and actually this is the very Christmas carol Um, to which Ebenezer Scrooge responded by threatening to whack the caroler with a ruler, Uh, and the caroler ran off as, as quick as he could. I think God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen is really timely for us in 2020. It was a carol where, if you read the first verse, the first stanza and the chorus, it's tidings of comfort and joy to anxious minds. This is Good news for anxious minds, this carol. So it begins with, you know it, uh, God rest you merry, gentlemen. And it's really important where you put the comma. It's not God rest you merry, gentlemen. It's God rest you merry, comma, gentlemen. And that's an imp- the, the, the difference is important. Important. It's not give it a rest, you, you overexcited gents. It's, it's actually, God bless you with peace, gentlemen, and spare you from worry. That's what it's communicating. And why? Why, why is the carol saying, be at peace? Be at, be at peace, be merry, don't worry. Well, it's the next, the next phrase. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. The reason for this prescribed joy is obviously the Incarnation. God becoming a human being in Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. This is why we can be merry and rest from our anxiety. Because Christmas reminds us that Jesus was born. Why? Well, it says to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. This is interesting. This carol highlights one aspect of the Christian message, and frankly, the Christmas story, that we often overlook at Christmas time, the reality of evil and the existence of Satan. To save us all from Satan's power, Satan comes up twice in this carol. comes up again in a later verse, so it's obviously a theme here. And this theme I want to talk about today, that Christmas reveals God's power over spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness is what the Messiah broke into. As we read about it in Isaiah chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a marvelous light. So I want to talk to you about how the power of God has complete and ultimate authority over spiritual darkness, and I'm going to talk about three aspects of this power. God's power over Satan revealed in Jesus Christ God's power revealed in us who follow Jesus and belong to Jesus, His people, His sons and daughters, His his spiritual offspring, as the Bible says. And finally, God's power over Satan revealed in weakness. The power of God seen in Jesus, the power of God seen in you and me, and the power of God seen in weakness. That's what we're going to do today. So God's power... Over the devil was revealed in Jesus, the God-Man, in his earthly, human, historical life. Now, what we see in the gosp- uh, not the gospel—in the first letter of John, what we see is the reason that Jesus came was to save us not only from our sin but from the source of sin itself. Now, it's obvious in verse five of of, um, chapter 3 of of 1 John, we see what, if you've been a Christian for a long time, is kind of obvious to you now. He tells us in verse 5 of chapter 3, you know that He appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. We don't have time today, but just a little bit of a background on this ancient letter. John was writing to Christians about false teachers among them. False ideas promoted by, basically, false prophets. And one of the big false ideas that was being spread around at that time was, if you're following Jesus and he died for your sins, you don't have to worry about your sins anymore. You can live however you want. Live however you want in this life because you're covered. And what John was trying to show them was that's completely false. It's a false way of thinking and it's a false way of living your life. Why? Because Jesus came to Eradicate sin, to take away its power, and there's no sin in him and himself. He's saying true Christians cannot habitually, continually live in sin. Of course, they're going to sin in this life because they're not perfect yet. But habitual sin, constant sin, living their lives in sin is impossible for the Christian because the very essence of who Jesus is is anti sin. He came to destroy sin, and there's no sin in him. So you can't live one way and somehow be connected to Jesus. John was saying it's an impossibility. But he goes further. In the second half of verse eight, he not only talks about why Jesus came to take away sin, he said something else. He said, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's really what I want to focus on today. In this entire passage, basically just that verse. The Son of God came, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what does that mean? What are the works of the devil? What kind of business is the devil in? You know, like stocks, trading, carpentry, medicine. What, what does the devil do? According to the Bible, you can, you can, again, we don't have a lot of time, you can kind of summarize the business of the devil, the works of the devil, by looking at his names in Scripture. So the old Hebrew name, Satan, it meant adversary. And the old Greek name, uh, the devil, (laughs) Diabolos, it meant the accuser. It meant the slanderer. So there you have adversary and slanderer. You sum up those two titles uh, for this guy, and you really discover what the works of the devil are. Ultimately, he is God's adversary who spreads misinformation about God. He opposes God, and he lies about Him. Those are ultimately the works of the devil. And what Jesus actually said about him, and this is interesting, if if anybody's perspective counts for something, it would be Jesus of Nazareth, who talked about Satan and evil and hell a lot. He actually said, recorded in John chapter 8, verse 44, speaking of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Not a good endorsement from the Son of God. And actually, the same approach that Satan takes with our Creator, he takes with those who bear the Creator's image in this world. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're an atheist, the Bible calls you a bearer of God's image. You are created in the image of God. You represent the Creator on this planet. And so Satan feels about you the same way he feels about your Creator. Even if you worship Satan, let me tell you, he is not on your side. He treats us the way he treats God. He is against us, and he's all about spreading misinformation and lies and tripping us up by half-truths and no-truths and kind-of-truths, which is what he did in Genesis chapter 3 in the beginning of human history with Eve and with Adam Satan opposed God to their face by what? Misrepresenting the truth. He got in their face and he got them to believe that God didn't say what he said. And that's what Satan's done ever since throughout human history. He harasses human beings through sickness, through conflicts, through death. You can read the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. You can read the entire book of Job in the Old Testament. You get a glimpse of how Satan at a level beyond what we can see and fully comprehend, uh, operates in the world. How evil truly operates. Actually, the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, also written by the Apostle John, who wrote today's letter, the book of Revelation, in in vivid imagery and symbolism, uh, describes Satan uh, and his forces as really being what's behind histories, wars, and chaos and oppression and injustice and hatred and basic unbelief and describes Satan as a master puppeteer of cultures and governments and even religions. Jesus actually in John chapter 16 calls Satan the ruler of this world. This is God in human flesh still calling Satan the ruler of this world. And then in Revelation chapter 12, he's described as the deceiver of the whole world. And that's very telling, too. He's the ruler of this world who deceives the whole world. And if that's not a definition of tyranny, I don't know what is. He is the father of all tyranny. He selfishly hates those he rules. But Jesus of Nazareth, and you can read about this in all four Gospels, Jesus of Nazareth demonstrated, as no other human being ever did, real power over Satan and his works. Look at what Jesus did, the kinds of things he did. He cast out demons, right? He he alleviated people who were psychologically and spiritually oppressed. What else did he do? He healed the sick. He also raised the dead, Showing in all of these ways, this is why the Gospels highlight these specific actions of Jesus. Because he was showing true authority over all the spheres in which Satan rules. Sickness, oppression, death itself. Jesus is showing his authority above and beyond Satan in Satan's own house and kingdom. And most importantly, where Adam and Eve and where I and where you have failed in resisting temptation, Jesus succeeded perfectly. Satan tried to tempt Jesus as he tempted Adam and Eve, as he's tempted me, as he's tempted you, as he will continue to tempt us for the rest of our lives in this broken world. And in that department, Jesus also completely, fully overcame Satan and resisted him. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ was good news because it put evil on notice. And it put the devil on notice, the true source of evil. Actually, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church, uh, to the Colossians, he said this about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He said that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those words, rulers and authorities, mean spiritual powers. Okay? That God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Another English translation says, made a public spectacle of them. Basically, dragged them out in the open and humiliated them. How? By triumphing over them in Jesus Christ in all that Jesus did. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, how is all of that good news if there's still so much bad news? And that's a really important question. And, and if you're thinking that way, I'm really glad you are. And I don't want to address that. Kind of in a roundabout way, but I'll get to it. Um, the second way that God demonstrates his power is in us in those of us who belong to His Son, Jesus. It's kind of like saying if, if, if you're in the king's family, uh, His authority bears weight on your identity and your status. You know, the C.S. Lewis books, the, the, ki- the kids discover once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia. If you belong to Jesus, you share in His royal status. And the things that He did are somehow also part of who you are and, and what you've done and what you'll be able to do someday. So God's power over Satan is also revealed in everyone who belongs to this Jesus Christ. Actually, in the very next chapter, if you keep reading this week, in John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, he'll go on to write, "...for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." He's saying that this is how we overcome worldliness and sin and darkness in our lives. The one who is in us, meaning the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, is greater than the one who rules the world. And that's really important. Even in the book of Revelation, at one point it says that the saints, the people of God, overcame the ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil, by their blood, by their sacrifice, and by the word of their testimony. So, this is, this is how human history is portrayed in Revelation that the saints, although they're weak, overcome this ancient old liar because they belong to Jesus. So, Satan, the Bible makes abundantly clear, is not all powerful. This isn't an equal good versus evil type of continuum that flexes, that fluxes back and forth, as some philosophies say. There is no match. There is no match between Jesus and Satan. Satan is not all-powerful. He's far greater than we are. Let's not be confused and deceived about it. All right, He's far greater than we are, but he's still a creature. And as a creature, he is infinitely less than Jesus Christ. And the reason there's still so much evil in the world and around us and in us is because Satan's end has not yet come. Back to verse 8. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so the word destroy there in the original language, the Greek word, it it didn't mean to completely annihilate. It meant to loosen. Okay? Think of loosening chains. Think of loosening uh, 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 what binds somebody. That's what John was getting at. Right? That Jesus came to loosen the works of the devil. So the idea here is that uh, sin, sickness, error, and death, they have not been fully eradicated, but Satan's power over us through them has been dramatically loosened because of what Jesus accomplished when he came the first time. Okay, Satan's days are numbered, but he's still quite active in the world. It's kind of like how D-Day in the 1940s, the, the, and, and the whole Normandy campaign in France by the Allied powers. Uh, that was the Allies loosening of the Nazis grip on Europe, but it was not the end of the war. Uh, just like when the Ents storm Isengard, that was not the end of Sarmon, but it was the beginning of his end. Right? That, that's the idea. Jesus came to announce the beginning of the end of Satan and evil and his works. That's what John is saying here. It's the, and we've talked about this before, it's the already and not yet dyna- dynamic of God's coming kingdom, and even the already not yet dynamic of how, how evil still exists. Okay? Satan has been defeated, but he has not yet been destroyed. And that's how we have to understand the existence of evil. And so, as the carol suggests, we must take comfort and joy in the gospel, this good news. Although there's still a whole lot to grieve about and be frustrated with and angry about in the world and the society in which we live, we still can take comfort and joy because Satan's days are numbered. You see, without this good news, without the Christian message and the Christmas message, there are... There's really no good news out there. Without this type of news, we leave room in our thinking, we leave room open for the victory of evil. Without this type of good news of what Jesus accomplished, what He came to do, without that, we have to leave room open for the victory of evil in the end. And we have to leave room open, as some religions and philosophy suggest, for this equal balance between good and evil. And if that's the case... Evil can win in the end. But the Bible and Christianity say, no, no, there, there's no match. That's the good news. And in light of that, I, I want to encourage us to beware of two things. Two pitfalls that uh, we need to be aware of. And the first I would just say in a general way, religious superstition. Some way that religious people think is frankly just superstitious. The idea that that evil is so powerful and so great, we need to be afraid of it and we need to blame everything on evil and on the devil and live in fear. And I would encourage you not to think that way. Not to be attracted by evil either. Not only afraid of it, but attracted by it. because you're kind of doing the same thing from different perspectives. Whether you're scared to death of evil or whether you're really excited about evil, you're elevating it to a level that it doesn't deserve and frankly is, is false because Jesus has already shown God has full authority over it and over Satan. But on the other hand, you can do more of the secular thing, which is popular in our society now, the, hu- the secular humanistic thing, which is to dismiss evil, uh, to deny its impact in the world, and its impact over every aspect of the human experience. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, he basically says this, uh, he says it in the introduction, that that the devils are equally pleased by both of these errors and hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. And what he means by materialist is not you like to buy lots of stuff. Uh, but you only believe in, in the physical world, in what our senses can perceive and observe. Right? So he's saying uh, that the demons are absolutely uh, thrilled in the materialist and the magician because they either love evil or are completely ignorant of its existence. So take evil seriously. Take it as seriously as God did or he wouldn't have sent his son to destroy it. The Christian takes evil seriously, but the Christ follower also takes comfort and joy that Jesus will return to finish what he started. That's the Christian hope. And this Christmas carol reminds us of it. So don't overestimate the presence and power of evil, okay? But don't underestimate it either. Think biblically. Think biblically. Now, I want to just share a, a, a word to anybody who's here in the room or listening or watching who's skeptical of this whole idea of the devil uh, or dismissive of the idea of a literal being who's kind of out to get us, who hates Jesus. Um, you know, you may think it's beneath you to think that way. You may think it's ridiculous of me to think that way, uh, to consider. Uh, that he exists, that evil is true, and you may be thinking that that's, uh, you know, in, in the 21st century, that that's kind of an outdated thing. Well, I would suggest to you that your opinion is a relatively new one in the course of human history. Relatively, very, very new idea. Um, throughout most of human history history, and throughout much of today's world, it is a widely held assumption that there are spiritual realities and beings that exist beyond our sense perception, beyond our scientific observation, many of whom do not have our best interest in mind. This is, this is a very old idea, and you know, when you look at most of the world today, it is still a very common idea. We admire the ancients in many ways. We admire their architecture, We admire their art. We admire their philosophy. Much of our human government and systems are still based in the ancients' philosophy. We praise the music of past civilizations and generations. But when it comes to their theology and their spirituality, we we just all of a sudden dismiss it. We ignore it. I want to be uh, respectful, but that's very inconsistent. To say, I like this stuff about the ancients, and we'll build our modern system of government and scientific observation on it, but the stuff that they said about God and good and evil, <clears throat> we don't need to listen to that stuff. Why do we do that? Is, is it because they carried around spears and used scrolls and, and we have space shuttles and the Internet? C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery to think that you're better than past civilizations because you have more information at your fingertips. You know, the last century and all its conflicts and its death toll, and the current century in just 20 years, the conflicts and the death tolls among us really show us that humanity has not changed all that much. Oh, we know a lot, but I don't think we're any wiser. So I would just encourage you to consider the Bible's answer to this, that evil is real. This is why we haven't gotten very far in thousands and thousands of years. Why the 20th century was perhaps the bloodiest century of all, with all the technology and the knowledge that we had. That evil is real. And that evil is not only real, but that it is personal. And that it is all around us. And that is even within us. Look back at verse 4. John says that sin is lawlessness. That sin. that, That what we are good at doing is lawlessness. To reject, to fundamentally at our core, reject the good moral system that our Creator has set in place by which His creatures can flourish. Sin is lawlessness. It is a fundamental, at the core of your being, rejection of the good moral laws that God has set in place. And that, my friend, ultimately that, The evil that is inside of you, the Bible says, is what Jesus came to destroy. That is what Christmas is all about. That baby, that baby in a manger, came to destroy the evil within us, which is the cause of the evil all around us. And so God's power over Satan which was revealed through Jesus of Nazareth and His earthly life, which is revealed in you or me or anyone who gives themselves to Jesus, who puts their hope in Jesus above all other things. And maybe you're having a hard time embracing those ideas that that God is fully powerful over Satan because of what Jesus accomplished and, and that somehow in broken, sinful human beings like myself, God reveals His power over Satan. You're having a hard time buying all of that well, you need to go further. God reveals his power over Satan, even in weakness. And this is maybe where it's get, where, why it's so difficult for you to embrace all of this. Because God has re- chosen to reveal his power over evil, not through <laughs> power and might and intelligence, but through weakness and humility. The last thing you would expect That's why so many Greeks and Jews 2,000 years ago couldn't stomach the message of Jesus because it wasn't what they expected. And yet, it's what God did. He brought His power and presence in the world against darkness and sin. How? In a little baby in a humble humble family. That's, That's how He chose to start this whole thing. And a man who lived a common life, worked as a carpenter didn't leave any human, earthly, monetary family legacy behind. Died a humiliating criminal's death on a, on a Roman cross. This is how God chose to reveal His power to you, to me, to history, even to Satan himself. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way. Since God's children have flesh and blood, okay, since we're human, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by His death, He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, those who were scared to death of death. The power that Satan has over us is the guilt of our sin. That's why he's the accuser. That's why he's the slanderer. He holds that power against you. You're a sinner and you're nothing, and that's all you'll ever be. God will never accept you. And the power that sin holds over you is its reward, which the Bible says is death. You don't just die because of entropy, you die because you're a sinner. And that's the penalty for breaking, that's the penalty for our lawlessness is ultimately death. And, and the ruler of this world holds power over the people of this world through sin and ultimately death. And Jesus came to reverse the curse, as another Christmas carol says. Christ's second coming will end Satan's dominion and cast him out forever. But His first coming... His first advent, his humble birth, his sacrificial life, his humiliating death defeated Satan by breaking the chains that he held around us, the power of sin and death. So you must confess your sin. You saw it demonstrated today. You must confess your sin, even as the Apostle Paul did it, who wrote almost half of the New Testament some holy roller, he was a sinner. And he said to you know, I'm the biggest sinner I know. And every time he talked to people about Jesus, even to kings and rulers and authority, he would always say, you know, I used to be a terrible guy. And I'm still the biggest sinner I know, but Jesus Christ was a great Savior. He came for people like me. You must do the same thing. You must confess your sin to God and to people you trust who follow Jesus as well. In a sense, you must become weak. Confessing your sin is to become yourself weak, to acknowledge that the evil is not only around you, but within you also. So you become weak. Jesus became weak to eradicate sin. So now you become weak to confess your sin and to embrace the power of God through weakness. If the Lord Jesus became weak, the Bible says it's no different from you. That's the way up. You've got to go down first. That's the way to victory. That's the way to healing. That's the way to transformation and to good health and to good thinking. You have to confess and admit. And in that weakness, you discover that God is more gracious and loving and forgiving and patient than you ever imagined. And that is how the power of Satan is broken over you when you discover that God knew already. He knows who you truly are already but He sent His Son to die for you anyway. That, when you discover that that's what the weakness of Jesus accomplished, there is no more powerful force in the universe to break the power of sin over you. Christmas reveals a lot to us. Amen? Christmas reveals the power of God by the humblest of means over spiritual darkness. So, rest. My merry gentlemen and gentlewomen, rest from your current dismay. Take comfort and joy this Christmas in Jesus whose unforeseen, unimaginable weakness appeared among us to destroy the power of evil. And don't underestimate evil, but don't overestimate it either. Because it says in the book of Romans chapter 8, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Okay, let's close with the final verse of this wonderful carol, which says, Now to the Lord sing praises all you within this place. And with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace this holy tide of Christmas, all other." doth deface. Let's pray. Father, we confess no authority or power or smarts over Satan, over the forces of evil that are behind uh, the greatest treachery in human history and in the world today. Uh, Father, we're Forgive us for thinking that we're greater than evil and forgive us for thinking that evil is greater than you and forgive us for thinking that evil is a non-entity. Help us to take it so seriously uh, that (laughs) uh, we are reminded of it every day, but help us to take your good news so seriously that we never allow it to overpower us or discover us or render us useless in the world. O Father, fill us with the hope that was sung to Ebenezer Scrooge, the hope he eventually embraced. That Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day to save us from the power of Satan when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, Father, in the name of Jesus, and because of Him, we embrace that comfort and joy. Amen.